Well, hey, it's so good to be together tonight. My name is Neil Hubacher. I'm the lead pastor of the harbor. And if you're joining us for the first time tonight, we've begun a series that we're calling Why God Why? And we're just wanting to address realizing that a lot of us have some trauma, some pain in our lives, and uh, just struggles, different circumstances that may make us sometimes ask, why God? What is the deal? Before we get into it, I just want to uh, say thanks to Jenna Voorhees and also my wife Kelsey and Carmen Elisa Lynch. They're the ones who did an incredible job organizing last night, and I think it's an event that we'd like to do again and again. We just had such a fun time doing the auction, and as Sarah mentioned, just the generosity of all of you, your, your, those of you who, who donated items, and just your generosity and bidding and everything. We just had such a super time. It was wonderful. So thank you so much. Let's give a round of applause for those guys who organized. It was great. <clears throat> and um, yeah, Sarah really laid it. You, you got it perfectly there with, with get out of here. You know, we, we, um, we want to be in the community. We want to bring church to the streets. And uh, like Sarah said, different times where we have this a five month Sunday or a five Sunday month. We'll take one of those Sundays and be out in the community. This first time we're doing it in May, we're doing it on the 23rd. Uh, the next, the following weekend is uh, Memorial Day. We want to get before then. And we just have this tremendous relationship with the Y. And the Y is letting us run a three on three tournament, basketball tournament for youth. And so like Sarah said, even if you may not like basketball or youth may not be your cup of tea, but I'm just going to tell you that May 23rd, this church is getting out of here, Gayo. G-O-H, sorry, and, um, <clears throat> and we're having church on the, on the basketball courts. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but that's Pentecost, and actually 10 days leading up to that, we'll be praying with other churches, and we're just believing God, you know, we're there to serve, we're there to love, we're just going to believe that God's going to do a special outpouring as we just serve and love youth in our city. It's really incredible. <clears throat> so, as Sarah said, we just want to get that on your radar, and um, just plan on the 23rd that Church is anywhere from about 1 to 7 o'clock, and we're going to, through your faith groups, you're going to hear about how you can serve. It's going to be a great time. Awesome. Why, God, why? Why, God, why? <clears throat> so far, in our little series here, we've looked at why, God, why, and our first answer we had for some of our pain and some of our trauma was the fact that you are not alone. Sorry, that's actually the second one. <clears throat> the first one is that you have an enemy, that you are born into a world at war. That's what we looked at. Some of our pain and some of our trauma comes from that fact that there's an enemy who's against you. Then last week, we looked at the fact that even though that's the case, we have a friend, his name is Jesus, and you're not alone. And we had someone who's willing to go through the pain that you have gone through also. And tonight, we're going to look at something else. And the way that I want to get into what we're talking about is by telling you about my fall of my first year at grad school. I was at Boston University walking up and down Commonwealth Ave. I was studying to be a teacher. And I had my schedule out. And I was looking, I remember distinctly walking down Com Ave and, uh, in Boston and looking at my schedule and stopped in my tracks. And I saw who my professor would be for my methods course. And my methods course was really why I was in grad school. I knew I could teach. You know, I knew I enjoyed teaching. I knew I knew a little bit of French. What I needed was I needed some methods, that is, I just needed to get some of these tools in my toolbox. How can I better teach? And I look at my schedule and I see that my teacher for my methods course is Dr. Laverne. Now, Dr. Laverne had been my ninth grade French teacher and the head of the department at the high school I went to, Needham High. 
So I looked and I said, well, this, you know, this will be fun. Could this really be him? Sure enough, I walk in the class and there's Dr. Laverne, aged about, oh gosh, uh, yeah, actually 10 years, uh, more than 10 years, because I graduated in 91 from high school and this was fall of 01, right before 9-11 hit. So I get to Dr. Laverne's class and sure enough, it's everything I want it to be. It's all of these methods. How can I be a better teacher? And I have this mega binder that I have of all these little tools of the trade I can use to help kids better learn French. But of all of that stuff, of all of this incredible wealth of information, there's a one-liner that Dr. Laverne gave me, and this one-liner totally changed my life, and it helped me become a better teacher. He said this. He said, you know what? Just kind of came up in conversation. I don't know how. Uh, probably another student had asked him a question, but he said, you know what? He said, you guys, you need to know something. As you teach, there's going to be a few people who really like you. <clears throat> he said, there's going to be a few people who really hate you. And then most of the people in the middle just aren't going to care. I said, that is awesome. You know, that basically set me free because sure enough, in my little five-year tenure as a teacher, there were a few kids that I really enjoyed and that really enjoyed me. You know, I had some chances to make some good relationships with students because I would take kids to France, get to know kids. The the city that I taught in was fairly Jewish, got invited to several Passovers. There were a few kids who really dug me. There's a few kids that we didn't get along so well. Probably at the rate of about one per year, I went toe-to-toe with one student or another. You know, usually it was, hey, they cheated, or another was just always tardy all the time. It was just like an incredible wrestling match with this whole family about how to get the kid there at 7.50 in the morning. But I go toe-to-toe with a few kids. But then most of them, right, I, I saw 80 kids a year about, great teaching load at, at Newton North, not too many kids, but 80 students a year, most of them just really didn't care. They were there because they had to fulfill a four or three year requirement to get into college. And that was awesome, because then I wouldn't take it personally when they weren't super excited about their French homework, you know, although I, w- I was loving my class, I prepared with, with great care, but I just wouldn't take it personally, it didn't bother me. So I kind of learned this lesson that I couldn't make anyone love my subject, and I certainly couldn't make anyone love me. And I just wonder if that's a lesson that you have also learned. Have you learned that you can't make anyone love you? You can't make anyone like you. If you're married, you understand, right? You can't make your spouse love you. Now listen, I got Ephesians 5, right? I know how to love my wife. I'm learning how to love Kelsey as Christ loves the church. I know if I'll cherish her and nourish her like I cherish and nourish my own body, things can go really well. But ultimately, there's no guarantee that I can make her love me. Maybe some of you who are married understand this dynamic because what happens is you can try to use manipulation or power plays to try to get someone to love you and you can't. Actually, you don't have to be married to understand that. Maybe in a romantic relationship or just in friendships, you can't manipulate people to like you. Maybe your parents. One thing that's really daunting to me is the fact that my own son also, J.D., there's nothing that I can really do to make him love me. And actually, if that's my mandate, if I take as my mandate to make my son love me, I'm going to be sorely disappointed in life. Now, of course, I'm going to try to take care of him. Of course, I've got to train him up in the fear of the Lord. You know, I've got to be a good dad to him, but, but I can't make him love me. I can't. Now, all of us here are children, right? You're born to someone. If you're alive here today, you're born to someone. <clears throat> Some, you know, a lot of you come from really stable homes where parents weren't looking for you to fill their love needs. But some of us, especially as we've been going through this series, we've found out that some of our why God, why stuff 
comes from the fact that our parents were inordinately looking for you to fill a need that you really weren't made to fill, right? What about, have any of you been in a position of delegated authority? I know that you have. We've got, some of you have been uh, counselors at camps. You know, some of you have, you know, led something. Some of you are managers at your workplace, and you have subordinates that you're over. And uh, you can't make those people love you. You can just serve them, love them, do your job. You just can't make them love you. I think this is a principle of life that has its origins in God. The fact that this is just a universal thing, I believe, is because it's a principle of God. I want to read a quote from Philip Yancey. He wrote a book called Disappointment with God, among others. And Philip Yancey is an interesting guy because he grew up in a really conservative, very uh, kind of rigid church background. And so all of his writings have to do with just the liberty kind of that there is in God and the you know, just the character of God. This is what he writes about this idea that you can't make people love you. He says, power can do everything, but the most important thing, it cannot control love. In a concentration camp, the guards possess almost unlimited power. By applying force, they can make you renounce your God. They can make you curse your family. They can make you work without pay, They can make you eat human excrement. They can make you kill and then bury your closest friend or even your own mother. All this is within their power. Only one thing is not. They cannot force you to love them. This fact may help explain why, why God, why, why God sometimes seems shy to use His power. He created us to love Him, but His most impressive displays of miracle, the kind we may secretly long for, do nothing to foster that love. And then he quotes a guy by the name of Douglas John Hall saying, God's problem is not that God is not able to do certain things. God's problem is that God loves. Love complicates the life of God as it complicates every life. So it seems to me I love, I love my wife and I love my son, just so you know, <clears throat> as we're talking about this. <laughs> it seems to me that love requires a certain amount of freedom, no? In order for there to be a love response that's reciprocated, there needs to be freedom. Freedom needs to be at the core of any freely given love. And I turn to another great book called Culture Making. I don't know if I referenced Andy Crouch last week. Andy Crouch, a guy I grew up going to church with, and uh, he's four years older than me. Uh, worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 10 years. And since then has gotten into his calling that he really enjoys, which is authoring and writing and speaking. He's, a lot of his articles show up in Christianity Today. But he's written a book called Culture Making. And this is the guy who came to Gordon Campus about a month ago. And he did his little uh, awesome little, he made us all sing spirituals. And it was awesome. <laughs> Anyways, in Andy's Reflections, On this very topic, he says this. He says, in order for humankind to flourish in their role as cultivators and creators, and this is all stuff we can actually put on the screen. This is up here. In order for humankind to flourish, and actually, I I want you to see it so you can get up there. That's our our friend Yancey. That's okay. Megan Pelletier is doing a great job. We're thankful for her. 
There we go. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Actually, Megan, I think we can go one, one before. There we go. <clears throat> in order for humankind to flourish in their role as cultivators and creators, that's really the premise of his book. He's saying, hey, we've been given a garden to cultivate, and um, we are able to make culture. He says, in order to flourish as our, on our role as cultivators and creators, God will have to voluntarily withdraw. God has to voluntarily withdraw in certain ways from his own creation. He makes space for the man to name the animals. He makes room for the man and the woman to know one another and explore the garden. He even gives, gives them the freedom, tragically but necessarily, to misuse their creative and cultivating capacities. Wow. God is always willing to be present, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but he is also willing to grant humankind their own cultural presence. So Andy Crouch mentions also a liberty, a freedom, but he called it tragic. And for us to look at this tragedy, we need to go back to the source. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to read with me in Genesis 2. Now Genesis, an interesting book. I want to tell you a little bit about it. Most likely penned by the man Moses about 3,500 years ago. Now whether he penned it because he kind of had put together some oral tradition that had been running down, or whether God really sovereignly revealed these events they're about to read at, you and I will never know. But one thing we can be sure of is that Moses did put pen to paper, or parchment perhaps, to give us this book, about 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. And this is what he talks about. This is how he shares about the character of God and man's fallen state. Turn with me to Genesis 2. I'm going to start in verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man. And remember, this is after an incredible creation story, right? God's built in so much adventure into this world. It's incredible. Mountains and oceans and lakes. Just this stunning vista that God has painted for man and woman. He says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, right? We get to cultivate. To work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. In God's love and his letting us be part of his creation, he gives us the freedom to eat anything but one thing, right? Just like so many fairy tales, there's one little condition that if the hero blows it, it all goes to, to heck. <clears throat> well, let's pick it up at Genesis 3. What happens with this freedom? Andy Crouch used the word tragic. What happens to this freedom? You know it. Start with me just right there in verse 1. Now the serpent, remember we talked about him two weeks ago. You have an enemy. You're born into a world at war. Here's the world at war. Happened even before this narrative starts. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And here comes Satan, the enemy of our souls, right? The one, the reason whom we've been born into a world at war, what does he say? He says, you will surely not die, as he so often does to you and me, 
half kind of truth, a twisting of truth. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. One fall, here's the fall that hurt us all. One fall hurt us all. We're talking about your pain, your tragedy, your difficulty. There's one fall that hurt us all. A part of your why God, why question, it comes from an enemy. And another part of your why God, why question, you know, where are you when it hurts? Why did this happen in my family? A part of that question comes from the fact that there's one fall that hurt us all. And this is it. There have been many, many reflections on this one fall that hurt us all. I want you to say that with me. One fall hurt us all. One fall hurt us all. Come on. One fall hurt us all. There we go. There's been a lot of reflections on this fall. But I think one of the best ones is one given about, well, 1,400 years after the writing of Genesis, and that was by a guy named Paul, prolific author of the New Testament. We're going to look at Romans 5. I want you to turn there. But as you're turning there, I need to tell you about Paul at this time. Paul, you've got to fast forward up to about 56, 57 A.D. It's the winter of 56, 57. I'm not talking 1956. I'm talking 0056, okay? 0056, 57. It's that winter. Paul is in a Corinthian home right in Corinth in modern-day Greece. And he's in a transition time in his life. He has been actively serving the living God for about 20 years of of life and ministry. The most recent years were planting churches all around the Mediterranean area. This guy's seen God do wonderful things. His third missionary journey is coming to a close. And he's looking westward. Okay, he's kind of, he's felt like he's done God's work in the Mediterranean, planting the churches that God's called him to plant. And now he's looking westward, and it feels like God's calling him to continue this church planting venture in Spain, way west. But in order to get there, he's going to have to go through Rome. So unlike some of Paul's other letters, right, plenty of the New Testament is his letters, most of them are to churches that he planted or to people that he knew. But Romans is different because Romans is, he's actually, you know, we mentioned the Navigate team that is going to North Africa. Romans is like Paul's support letter. He's writing to the Romans saying, hey, I'm coming. We need to be mutually encouraged. I don't know you in person yet. I'm going to come and I'm, gonna be, I, I, I'm headed towards Spain. I want to go this way. In order for this to work, I, I, I want to I base my ministry out of Rome. That's what he's doing. But also, since he's been around doing this thing for about 20 years, it's a very mature reflection of all that he believes to be true about the gospel. And he's really kind of settled into this is how the gospel that I preach fits into society. This is how it fits into history. So when we look into Romans, we're looking at a book that's a mature work by a man who's given his life for Christ. I just want you to hear that as we look on his reflection of the fall that hurt us all in Romans 5. I'm going to be in verse 12. Look at his reflection on what happened in that day in the garden. He says, in Romans 5 verse 12, he says, Therefore... Sin entered the world through one man. 
right? He's talking about Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. I want you again to bring up to your conscience the your why God why question. Your tragedy, your trauma, your pain. You've got to realize that a part of that is because of this. Because death has come to all men and all have sinned. Death came through sin and it's touched your life and it's touched mine. There's one fall that hurt us all, including you. Things are not as they should be and this is partly why. I want to play a short clip. Are you, are you familiar with the, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Some of you read the book. Some of you may have seen the movie. I love the movie. And I'm, we're just going to, actually, we're just going to um, show a brief little clip. Of course, the character that I identify with most is Edmund. You know, Edmund's the guy who blows it. And uh, Edmund, of course, lives out the story of this fall through, I mean, just right before our very eyes. I'm just going to make sure that our audio video is working. <laughs> and um, this, this little clip is just set to uh, uh, a song um, called The Death of Beauty. That's what happened, right? When, when the one fall that hurt us all happened, a death of beauty happened. Let's watch this clip. See if you see yourself in Edmund. Is it just me, or do you see yourself also in Edmund? Do you see him there? Obviously the white witch, the kind of Frigidaire-looking lady, uh, the Satan. Do you see Aslan, the lion, a picture of Christ? And of course, Edmund betrays his own brothers and sisters, just like we've all betrayed our brothers and sisters and God himself. <clears throat> well, another man has done a great job analyzing, reflecting upon this fall that hurt us all. He's a contemporary. His name is Dr. Hollinger, he's the current president at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he has a book called Choosing the Good, and he says that what's happened is uh, the fall has created incredible alienation, and he, he lists four areas in how we get alienated, and in this fall that hurt us all, he says the first way that we get alienated is we are alienated from God, of course. If you go back with me to that Genesis story, I'm in Genesis 3, let me pick it up around verse 8. We are alienated from God. Verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And up till that point, if the man and the woman had heard the Lord God coming in the cool of the garden, they would have said, Yes, we're together. God, it's good to be with you. You're my friend. But what's happened since the fall that hurt us all is now God's become an enemy to us. We hide from him. Look what it says. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, probably for the first time ever in history, said, where are you? Where are you? We're alienated from God. What was meant to be a sweet friendship, now we hide from him. The thing is, we're all still longing for transcendence, right? We long for this transcendent relationship with the living God. But because of the fall... Now we go to other things to fulfill that need for transcendence. Every other idol you can think of, we are meant to have it with God. We're alienated from him. The second alienation that Dr. Hollinger mentions is alienation from others. Follow with me in the narrative, right? Watch the blame game unfold. I'm in verse 10. He answered, Adam, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, is this you have done? The woman said, this serpent deceived me and I ate. Boom, boom, right? Everyone blaming each other. We are out of fellowship with one another. And now what we do is we start to use one another, we manipulate each other, to get our own psychological needs met, right? So I can feel validated and good about myself. I'm going to get this person around me or whatever. And we really have turned from selfless creatures to incredibly selfish. We're alienated from one another. Thirdly, Hollinger says that we've been alienated from our own selves. We've been alienated from our own selves. Back up in verse 7, right after they both took of the fruit, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Shame, guilt. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Hollinger also says, hey, isn't it incredible our capacity for deception? And he mentions, you know, look at what happened at the Nuremberg trials. We have these Nazi criminals incredibly educated men. One of the leaders of the, who, who made the Nazi propaganda, his last name is Goebbels. This guy had a PhD from a prestigious university in Germany. Okay, so this guy can listen to Bach at night. He can read great literature. And the next day he goes to camp at Auschwitz and terminates people. What is wrong with this picture? How is it that someone gets so deceived that they can justify that? And of course, it's easy for us to point the finger at someone like Goebbels. But you and me are both just as deceived, aren't we? We have, we've been separated from a true sense of self, to use the modern psychology language, right? And we're desperately in search of it. We've been alienated from our own selves. This is the fall that's hurt us all. And lastly, he says, we've been alienated from nature. We've been alienated from nature, right? We were meant to have dominion, responsibility, stewardship, and caring. But instead, as Hollinger says, we raped the earth. Right? We're not, we're not taking care of resources like we should. And on that note, I just have to say, one of my favorite stories is a church in Idaho. It's a vineyard church. I love that movement. And this church in Idaho, they are the leaders in their city of things like recycling. Right? The city couldn't afford a truck to go gather like recycling. And so what does the church do? The church bought a truck so that city could have recycling. And then when they came to the time in their congregation, when they were going to build a church, They made a green building. I think that's the way it should be. I think Christians should be leading in stewardship and whatnot. Okay. Again, how does this help? I'm thinking of some of you who are, you're stuck in your pain, you're hurting, you're wounded. Not all of us are there, but some of us have some some defining wounds like we talked about two weeks ago. And it's like, great, Neil. So you tell me that a little of my problem is the fact that thousands of years ago, one guy messed up, and now this right? How does that help? Well, it is helpful, and then it helps us make sense of the story we're in. But I want to go back to the analysis of that man, Paul, to tell you how it helps. So back in Romans 5, we want to continue from where we were and hear what he has to say. I'll tell you exactly how it helps. I'm actually going to start in verse 15, but it gets really good in 17. Okay, so you stick with me. We're in Romans 5, verse 15. And then I want you to follow with me in 17 where it gets good. But the gift, but the gift 
It's not like the trespass, right? The sin, the transgression. The, the picture of the word trespass is a breach of relationship. And that's what Adam and Eve did, a breach of relationship. For if the many died by the trespass, that's you and me, we died because of Adam's trespass, because we've been sold as slaves to sin, basically. If many died by the trespass of one man, my, man excuse me, <clears throat> how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Okay, so if you and I have been hurt by the one this fall that hurt us all, how much more does the life of Christ rescue us? Again, it says in verse 16, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's, Adam's, sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Here it is, verse 17. For if... By the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Let me read that last part again. For if by the trespass of the one man, right, by the fall that hurt us all, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? And so I've got kind of messages for two people tonight. For those of you who've been walking with Jesus for some years and you know him and you've decided to follow him, then I, I just believe with all my heart to use the language of this verse that there is an abundant provision of grace for your why God why question. That thing that drives you nuts, that pain you're carrying, that defining wound that's really made things tough, made you want to pull away from God, right? In that very place, I believe that there is an abundant provision of grace that's very specific for you. And there's grace for you to reign in this life, okay? That word couldn't be any stronger. Paul chose it well. Reign, like a king reigns and rules. Now, I know some of you are leery. We don't want to... Um, you know, sometimes there's a kind of triumphalistic, charismatic, like name it, claim it. I don't, you know, I kind of just ignore my problems and I'm just going to reign and everything's fine. I'm not suggesting that tonight. I'm suggesting that you let God right into the core of your problem. And right there by letting him in, there's grace for you to reign. And reigning looks like you got more joy and more life and more peace right in the midst of your problem. And if you're here tonight and you've never thought about following God. You, you, don't, you don't know if you're a Christian. You don't know about this whole claim for Christianity. I'm going to tell you straight up what this scripture says is, in your why God, why question, and the very thing where you shake your fist and say, God, where, where the heck are you? The abundant provision of grace for you, as it is for all of us, but the abundant provision of grace for you is Jesus Christ. There's one place that you can go with your why God, why question, and it's to the man, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you tonight, if you have never heard this before, I want to invite you to ask Jesus to show himself to you and say, Jesus, come in. I want to receive you into my life, is actually the, the language that's used in John chapter 1. I want to receive you into my life and I want to follow you. For those of you who know him already, I'm just going to ask you to ask a question. This is what I want you to do. And actually, at this time, I'm going to ask Josh and the worship team to come up. For those of you who already know Jesus, you've already asked him into your heart and life, you've received him and you're following him, here's the, the one thing I want you to do is I just want you to ask God and say, God, I know this one false hurt us all, 
And I just want you to ask God, God, what is your, your specific provision of grace for me tonight so that I can reign in life in the midst of this why God, why kind of pain? Okay, let me just repeat that. God, this is your prayer tonight. This is the prayer that I'm inviting all of you to pray. God, I know that one fall hurt us all. But God, what is your specific provision of grace for me that will allow me to reign in this life? It's just maybe just a word of hope for you, you know? Maybe given your situation, there's just a word of hope. You're not in despair anymore. There's grace for you. What does it look like? Ask God. Ask Him. And you know what I get excited about? I get excited about a whole church that's asking this question and inviting God in. And I know that's what we've been doing a lot through this series. Through this whole Why God Why series, we've been asking God, will you come in to my pain? Will you come in to my hurt? Will you come into my situation? And what I get excited about is if all of us start to do this, we're going to start to reign in life. And what that looks like as a, as a church is we're no longer stuck in our, ah, oh, I've just, you know, here's the one fall that hurt us all and, and uh, this is my situation and things aren't going to change and I'm in despair and blah, you know. We're going to start to move as a whole people, not just one or two people. Not just a few happy people over the side who worship, you know, demonstrably. But this whole church is going to start to experience the abundant provision of God's grace. And like I mentioned before, there's going to be more joy. There's going to be more hope in your life. There's going to be reigning in life. And when a whole group of people gets a hold of this, that's how we can change a city. You know, we, we, we prayed or we sung earlier, Lord, you're the God of this city. And I still just get blown away by the fact, I, and I know I've mentioned it probably about four times in the last four months, but this verse in Acts 5 that is so haunting to me <clears throat> is that these few disciples, it says that they, um, how does it say? It says they filled Jerusalem with this teaching, right? Listen, if tw- 11 people can fill an entire city with the teaching of Jesus, why can't a congregation of 80, 100, 150, 200 why can't we see all of North Shore turned upside down? I guarantee the way that we start doing it, yes, we're going to share. Yes, we're going to do go, right? Get out of here Sunday. We're going to do basketball tournaments, love people, pray for them out there. We're going to do all that kind of stuff. But the thing, where we need to start is we need to be a people who are reigning in life. Well, who, who's going to want Jesus if we're all miserable all the time? Because we're all in our, oh, I'm hurt, you know? The fall of Adam, blowing my life. I'm sad, you know? It's terrible. That's not attractive. Not at all. So as we all start to do this, it's going to get wonderful. I want to encourage you, if you haven't gotten this book yet, where I'm speaking from tonight is largely from Act 3, Chapter 3, Act 3. And you want to, you want to pick it up. You want to get involved in, in what we're doing here. If you're a regular tender, give us $2 to cover the cost. If you're not, just take it. We'd love for you to have it. Why don't you stand with me?